Welcome into Unsportsmanlike Conduct on KALA HD2 in the 106.1 FM dial. I'm Logan Howell. With me, as always, is David Meyer. David, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Real excited to get into some NBA playoffs that we got going this week. But first, let's start with our social media posts that we put out there this week. Our first one, we're continuing throughout this month the best athletes to wear the number six because it's the month of June. Our next athlete on the list was Cardinal legend Stan Musel. Stan Musel had a 22-year Hall of Fame career that was full of accolades. He was a 24-time All-Star, 3-time MVP, and had two Major League Player of the Year awards. Over his career, he amassed 475 home runs while batting 331. Over that span, he won a World Series with the Cardinals three times as well, playing the outfield and first base. So, Stan's up next on our list of the best athletes to wear, the number six. Looking at all the greats that have played for the Cardinals, where would you rank him all time? For me, it's easily number one. He's the leader of the Cardinals in a lot of key stats. Uh, Number one being the kind of pivotal stat for comparing generational players. Uh, War. He leads the Cardinals in war by, it's like 30 uh, wins above replacement between him and the guy behind him, who's Rogers Hornsby. Uh, he's just so, he was so good for so long, and there's he was just a captain of that team, always an all-star or in the MVP race. He led the league in batting average five times. He was not an all-star in only three seasons. Uh, one of those, he only played 12 games. Another was just his first season, like first full season in the league. And the third, he was uh, in the Army. So that there were no stats for that, obviously. So he's just consistent and a fantastic overall talent. So that's he's definitely number one in the Cardinals historically. Yeah, I, I got number one, too. I mean, you look at the Cardinals... They're an organization that's had a lot of great players over their time, especially recently, earlier in the last decade. They had some really big names go through there. I mean, some names that pop up, Albert Pujols and obviously Yadier Molina, all up there in the conversation. But I just look at these accolades. You went over quite a few of them. The ones I read off, an all-star 24 times. How impressive is that? 475 home runs, a three-time MVP. I mean, these are type of numbers that you type of accolades that you don't see other people getting in today's league. There's not many players ever that have got 24 all-stars. So the fact that he was able to do that and just a model of consistency, his whole entire career, just such a great player. That's one thing I love about looking at when you try to compare different generations of players, it's always tough. But the one thing that you can always look at is consistency. How well do they do it over the course of their career? And I think that's a major boost for players that are able to play such a long time and be so good for so long. So for me, that's really what did it for him and put him over the top and made him my number one Cardinal of all time. And next, yesterday we had a birthday. It was Troy Vincent, a former NFL cornerback. And we're going to get into a little bit, uh, some things here about Troy Vincent. It was his 51st birthday. And he was the 7th overall pick in the 1992 NFL Draft by the Miami Dolphins. He spent four years there with the Dolphins before he signed with the Philadelphia Eagles, where he would spend eight more seasons. 
Over his career, he also played for the Buffalo Bills and the Washington football team. Over his 15-year career, he hauled in 47 interceptions, taking three of them back for touchdowns, and he was the 2002 Walter Payton Man of the Year recipient, a five-time Pro Bowler, and an All-Pro in 2002. So, we wish a happy birthday to Troy Vincent. And now looking at Troy Vincent, looking over his stats, he was pretty underrated to me. I didn't expect, I knew Troy Vincent, I knew the name, but I didn't know that those were the stats that he had. 47 interceptions, nothing to sneeze at for a corner. When you think of Troy Vincent, what's something that comes to mind for you? For me, it's the word consistency. He was just such a consistent player, week in and week out, and he stayed healthy pretty much his entire career. There's only one year when he was 34 that he played under 10 games. He played most, you know, a lot of games. He brought in interceptions. He was a ball hawk. You mentioned he uh, took a couple back for touchdowns. He's actually in the top 50 or around there for most interceptions all time. And there's a lot of stuff that cornerbacks do that isn't really seen in stats. He was just such a dominant corner he, who would shut guys down completely. And you can't really see that in stats, but he was just so good and so consistent. Yeah, you're exactly right with him. And funny enough, when I made this post about Troy Vincent for his birthday, the first thing I knew he played in the NFL, like I said, stats-wise, I didn't know that was the type of numbers that we were talking about. But also, the one thing that stuck out to me about Troy Vincent was when I started watching the NFL, it was probably about 08 was when I really started to get into the NFL. And since then, he's more known for being the executive vice president of football operations in the NFL. When I think of Troy Vincent, that's what I know him for. Not even his play on the field. So when I was able to take a look at his career, that for me was a eye opener, just seeing what he was able to do in the league. And it makes a lot of sense as to why he's the vice president of football operations. He's a guy that won, you see, he won the Walter Payton man of the year award. That's a huge award and a huge honor in the NFL. So the fact that he had that very good to have on your resume if you're trying to apply for an NFL position and just his longevity over his career made him a perfect guy for that so for me that's what sticks out to me about him and the next up we have is today in sports today in sports in 1985 the Los Angeles Lakers defeated the Boston Celtics in the NBA finals the Lakers led by coach Pat Riley were able to prevent their Eastern Conference rival the Boston Celtics from repeating as NBA champions the series was over in six games, and the MVP of the series was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Abdul-Jabbar averaged 25.7 points and nine rebounds in the series. The series also featured 11 future Hall of Fame players and coaches while also having two Hall of Fame officials. Pretty interesting stat there. So now taking a look at that series, but also the many series that the Celtics and Lakers have had, was there a better rivalry in the league? And even today, have we seen a better rivalry than the Celtics and the Lakers? I don't think so. Just the how long that uh, that rivalry has been in existence. It's It first started in 1959, their first time they met in the finals. And it just blossomed from there. It comes with the success of both teams being just very talented and 
uh, winning a lot of championships. So because they're so good, they play each other so often. Uh, A stat I think is really interesting. They have the fourth most uh, playoff appearances against each other or playoff matchups against each other. And they're in different conferences. So the only way they're going to play against each other is in the finals. The other three in front of them are all in the same conference. So just how fantastic those teams are, the talent on them, and how often they played each other is what makes it probably the best uh, rivalry, possibly in sports. Yeah, I agree 100% with you. And when you look at it, you have two teams here, two of the most historic franchises in sports history. You have the Celtics, you have the Lakers, and they've combined, just those two teams alone, for 34 of the 74 NBA championships that we've seen over the NBA's history. When you look at the Celtics and the Lakers, I believe they're both tied to 17 championships apiece after the most recent Lakers finals win. It's hard not to put them at the top of any rivalry when you have just teams consistently being great and at the top of their sport at that. And when you look at all these sports, there's really, you have baseball, you have teams up there in the championships like the Lakers and Celtics, obviously, with like the Yankees, teams like that. But in the NFL, there's really nothing like that. You have the Steelers with six Super Bowls. Then you have the uh, Patriots as well. Then you have like the Cowboys and 49ers with five Super Bowls. But nothing is quite like the Celtics and Lakers both having 17 apiece. It's phenomenal what they've been able to do over their time. So I'm with you. I think it is the best rivalry in all sports. And just the fact that it's just spanned for so long, like it doesn't go away. That for me, if you can have a rivalry starting in the 60s, even before then, and going this long, you're good enough to have the best rivalry of all time, in my opinion, out of any sport. And so now that actually transitions us into our NBA playoff talk, talk, and not for a good reason for Lakers fans that will be listening. The Suns eliminate the Lakers in the first round of the playoffs. LeBron James' first loss in the first round of the NBA playoffs in his whole entire career. Now, looking at this series, one thing that was brought up, was the Lakers' quick turnaround. And the Miami Heat as well. They had the quick turnaround after the after their championship win in the bubble. Do you think some of the Lakers' struggles came from such a quick turnaround this last season? I think partially it, it could have, but that's not the entire reason. They, Those big stars, they, the LeBron, Anthony Davis, they did get injured, but... They had so much rest throughout uh, the season, the regular season this year, that you can't fully blame a first-round exit on the quick turnaround. These guys are premium athletes. They have to be able to compete at a high level when necessary, and they just weren't able to do that. Yeah, looking at this series, obviously, I think... Some of the struggles, I'm with you there, do come from that. One, the injuries. You're more prone to injury when you're fatigued. And, I mean, these guys were fatigued. LeBron James talked about going into the season. But the injuries that they had, obviously, Anthony Davis, you can attribute to fatigue on the body. But when you look at LeBron James, his was more of a freak accident in a way that he got his ankle rolled up on as someone dove into his ankle. That doesn't have to do with body fatigue. But when you look at Anthony Davis, he's an athlete that's already 
uh, you could call him prone to injury. So the fact that he was playing with such a fatigue, I do think uh, led to some of the struggles. But overall, this team, the injuries led them to getting the seventh seed. So that tough series against the Suns. But the Suns came out and they performed at a top level. And they are really proving just how dominant they are within the East and how good of a team they really are. So I don't think when you put blame onto things, yes, sure, some of the injuries came from that. But at the same time, this Lakers team, it was a giant mix of things. Freak injuries, players not playing to their potential. If you have two starters in your lineup, both going one going 0 of 8, one going 0 of 9, you're not going to win many games, especially when those two are supposed to be your shooters on this team. You're not going to win many games. So for me, I think it was obviously some injuries there. Yes, you can blame that. But just the overall struggles this Lakers team had once they got into a chance to close out the Suns up 2-1, that is where I you can't really put that on uh, the bubble play and taking so long into the season. And now looking at this Lakers team, they're now into the offseason. What's next for this team? Where do they go from here? They need to get better, obviously. And they have actually kind of a lot of room to do that. They're only bringing back seven starters or seven players out of this entire roster are coming back next year. And that includes Montrez Harrell, who has a player option. He very well could decline. So it's really six. You have a lot of money you can spend. The free agency class isn't coming into this offseason, isn't fantastic. There aren't too many big names. Uh, Kawhi Leonard is probably the biggest one, but he has a player option. He might he might accept so he could be off the market completely. I think what they need to do is just focus on depth. Maybe you're not going to go out and get a star player like a Kyle Lowry or DeMar DeRozan, maybe even Mike Conley. You don't need one of those guys. You need depth. A lot of role players who can show up and play around LeBron and AD, and then when those guys are off the court, still just keep you in the game for long enough to though uh LeBron and AD are rested and are able to come back in the game. That's that's the team you have to build. You're exactly right. You need depth on this team. And one way one thing they need to definitely look at is shooters for this team. When you have your star players LeBron James and Anthony Davis, Anthony Davis is an elite scorer. LeBron James, you could argue is an elite scorer as well. But he's turned into this late in his career. He's kind of the number two on this team. It's Anthony Davis taking the scoring load. LeBron's that facilitator. Get him some shooters. We saw when Anthony Davis got hurt, exactly what the Suns did to the Lakers. They said, okay, LeBron's not going to beat us up the middle. He's not going to take us to the rim. Force him to kick it out and make them beat us. And what did the bench players and the role players and the Lakers do? Not beat the Suns. If you're this Lakers team, you have to kind of realize the shift that the NBA is going to. You have to be able to score massive amounts of points. The Suns, in that whole series against the Lakers, were extremely hot from the three-point range. The whole entire series. You have to have some type of shooters that can keep you in series like that. And it helps. They're going to get open shots. You got LeBron James driving. Anthony Davis you have to worry about. They're going to get open shots in the corners and up top. 
but you have to find guys who can consistently knock it down from three. Dennis Schroeder coming into this, he was a nice piece to add now going into free agency, but he wasn't an elite guy from the three-point line. He's just not. Then you look at some other guys, KCP, he's supposed to be a, a pretty good shooter. He tends to not show up sometimes. You can't have that in this, especially this series. You cannot have that. And Kyle Kuzma, that project has really just not worked out the best at all. When you look at it, could he be doing better elsewhere? Maybe. We've seen some former Lakers in that trade package go on and do well. But I don't know what it is with Kyle Kuzma. He's got the talent, but it just has to get put together somehow. This Lakers team needs shooters big time. And they also need Anthony Davis to consistently play. If he's not consistently playing, LeBron James, no matter how you want to look at it, cannot go out there and score the numbers that he used to when he's with the Cleveland Cleveland Cavaliers. He can't do it. He can't go out there and score 51 points consistently anymore. It's just not in his arsenal. And when you look at how his game has changed, he's not that guy anymore. He's not the lead scorer. Anthony Davis is clearly that. They need Davis to play, and they got to find shooters big time. And speaking of Anthony Davis, this was tossed around by Colin Coward. The possibility of exploring a trade for Anthony Davis. If you're this Lakers team, would you look into that possibility of trading him? I I would. I'm of the state of mind that, or I'm of the opinion that every GM should always have like an underlying shopping their players. Just see what the value is around the league and how people are evaluating your players in terms of money. And if they are going to trade him, it would probably be not next year, but the year after. Uh, Because unless LeBron retires early uh, before his contract with the Lakers ends, which I don't see happening because LeBron is a free agent in 2023 and Anthony Davis is still under contract for two more years, which includes a player option. You can move him then. He'll be around 30. You can move him for a big package of picks and players and really kind of start over. So it's definitely a possibility. I just don't think it's going to be this offseason. Yeah, I agree. I don't think it's going to happen. But I do 100% think they should look into it. It should be looked at. And some people may think that you can't trade Anthony Davis. Look what he's done for this Lakers team, especially in the postseason and the bubble. I get that. But when you have a team, when they brought in LeBron James, the mentality shifted for the LA Lakers. It was no longer, okay, let's build a team. It was, we have a team. It's time to put this team into win-now mode. They got rid of all the young guys, brought in the veteran who's supposed to take them to the next level. And it worked. They got a championship out of it. But this LeBron James and Anthony Davis duo should not be a one-championship team, especially for the Los Angeles Lakers. This duo should be able to win at least two championships while they're together. And I thought this year, before the injury, was a real good opportunity for them to put that together. But that didn't happen. If you can trade Anthony Davis, that opens up a max contract slot for you. You could look into possibly one guy that it's, like I said, just thinking out loud here. One guy that I've talked about consistently and his wanting to not leave L.A. is Kawhi Leonard. If you want to keep him in L.A., you have the max contract slot. Could you convince him 
to shift to the Lakers where he originally wanted to go if Anthony Davis has gone. Maybe it takes some good management up top to do that, and the Lakers clearly have that. They Lakers have stars all the time, and they have for the last two decades. So, yes, I think you absolutely should look into it because at the end of the day, if Anthony Davis isn't on the court, the Lakers struggle big time. But you look at this. If LeBron James wasn't with this Lakers team, it was Anthony Davis by himself. I think we see the same result because it's the duo of Anthony Davis's scoring, LeBron James facilitating, and what he brings to the team in general that makes the Lakers so good. I don't think this is an either or can win it by themselves. When they play top talent like they did against the Suns, you have to have both of them. And if one of them is consistently injured, you have to look at, do I move on, get someone else in here so I can win these championships now? Because once LeBron's out the door, once Anthony Davis is out the door, the Lakers go back to needing to find young stars and building a new team. So I think it definitely should be explored this offseason. And one final topic on the Lakers right quick. LeBron James changed his jersey number from 23 to number 6. And this has been talked about for quite a while now that he was going to do this. As soon as they trade for Anthony Davis, that was put into the mind of fans. Anthony Davis could take 23 back. LeBron could take 6. He says after the Space Jam movie, he will shift back to 6. What do you think about it? You intrigued by it or just another offseason headline that should go to the wayside? Uh, just another off-season headline. This was something he wanted to do ever since he got to L.A. with and paired with Anthony, Anthony Davis. Uh, the NBA wouldn't really let them. Some contract thing with Nike, it's, it's a whole money thing. But it just makes sense to me. You get Anthony Davis at 23, the number 23, where with the number he started his career in and then LeBron going to six, which is his heat number, probably his most known number at least. Uh, it, it just works. It makes sense to me. So I don't think it's all that big of a headline. Yeah. For me, I do think it's a little bit a bigger of a headline just because uh, my childhood was a lot of LeBron James and that Miami heat number six and just how dominant of a player that LeBron James was. And it brings up an interesting conversation when you think about it. Everyone wants to talk about what was the best version of LeBron James. Was it the Lakers? Was it the Cavs the second time? Was it a young LeBron? Was it Miami Heat LeBron James? When I look at it, in terms of just pure scoring, I think just dominant scoring, I would go Miami. When you look at it just consistently, he was the guy. And he was that the second time in Cleveland as well. I thought that LeBron James, the second time in Cleveland, was a more well-rounded version of himself. Defensively, he had he started to gain that ability to facilitate that Cavaliers team, and he still had that scoring ability, the 50 points a night. But that LeBron James, Miami Heat, number six, that was just a different dominant LeBron James. It really was, and it was exciting to watch. So for me, I'm excited to see him back in the jersey, number six. He practices in number six every day, so it was just a matter of time before this happened. But he also did that in Cleveland before he even went to Miami. So now we're going to shift focus to another um, series here. The Denver Nuggets beat the Blazers in six. Damian Lillard put on a show throughout the whole entire series, tried his best, literally did everything he could to not get the Blazers sent home. 
when he was asked about his future with the team, he really didn't comment on it much. He's made a couple social media posts that you could say they're a little fishy as to what he might do this offseason. Could he uh, force a trade? When you look at Damian Lillard and this team, we talked about it a little bit last week. Is it time to go for Damian Lillard? Absolutely. I think he he should leave as soon as possible. Uh, it's just a question of will he get traded or will it be uh, free agency? He'll be a free agent in after 2025, so probably traded. Uh, but throughout his time in Portland, he's always said, I'm Portland for life. I'm going to be here for my entire career. So his not commenting is is a commentary in and of itself. Him not completely being on board for staying and not vocally saying that is basically screaming, you know, I got to explore my options. I might, I'm, it might be time to go. Where he goes or if he actually does get dealt is a whole other question. But I think we, at some point within the next two years, we'll see Damian Lillard in a different jersey. Yeah, it's time for Damian Lillard to go. Uh, Portland as a team is phenomenal because of Damian Lillard. But you take him away from that, this team is nothing. They really, no one would step up. They would never be a playoff team without Damian Lillard, especially in that Western Conference. They wouldn't have a chance. And when you look at it with Damian Lillard, I do, I enjoy what he's trying to do. He's tried forever to stick around in Portland and make it work, like you said. But the way the game has shifted in terms of stars going different places, everyone's done it at some point. They've said they're going to be there for life, and they move on. It's the way it goes. LeBron James, at the time, biggest star in the NBA. He said he was going to stay in Cleveland, stay in Cleveland. He shifts to Miami. He leaves after a certain amount of time where it was no he could no longer lead that team. He couldn't get there and win it by himself. He realized that. He moves on. Kevin Durant, another guy, he said, OKC's for me, OKC's for me. Where does he end up? Golden State. Because he realized at some point that relationship between him and Russell Westbrook wasn't going to work. It wasn't going to bring a championship to him. These NBA players today are so focused on legacy. If you don't have six rings like Michael Jordan, you'll never catch him. In any argument, you'll never catch up to him. That's the way most NBA fans view today's game. You could have all the records in the world, but if you don't have those six championships like Michael Jordan, you can't be viewed as the greatest of all time. So you have to find a way to get there. And that's why we've seen LeBron go to Miami with Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh, a super team, quote-unquote. Durant go to Golden State, create a super team. Kawhi Leonard's another guy, a star, that moved on. Paul George. The list goes on with these guys. Legacy hinges on rings. You look at any sport, Tom Brady as well. He wasn't considered the greatest until he caught that last Super Bowl ring. He tied Joe at four, and it was over. The argument was done. Tom Brady's the greatest quarterback to ever play football. Same thing here. Damian Lillard's legacy, if he's going to go down as one of the best point guards to ever be ever play the game and be remembered forever, he has to go win championships, and that's not going to happen here in Portland. They're never going to get and be able to entice a big star to come join this team. And now if you're the Blazers and you're this front office 
and you see what's going on with Damian Lillard, do you believe that the Blazers have a real opportunity to entice Lillard to stay with the team? I think out of any team in this kind of situation where you're trying to get a star to stay, they have one of the best chances just because he's repeatedly said, I want to stay in Portland for my entire career. What you have to do is put a good team around him. And there has just not been that at all. CJ McCollum is... I thought he was better than he performed in the playoffs this year. He definitely took a step back. And past him, there isn't really anyone who jumps out at me. Yeah, you have guys like Carmelo Anthony and Yusuf Nurkic, but there's no star. In the NBA, you need stars to win. You need at least two. The last team to win with one star was the Mavs in the 2010s-ish. Yeah, 2010. So you need star players. You have to entice someone from somewhere. Obviously, the first thought that jumps to mind there is Kawhi, but there are other guys who you might want to possibly trade for. The problem there is you don't have a lot of trade assets. So you have to either bring in a star or have the best depth possible. Just starters that are rock-solid, borderline all-stars, and then starting caliber guys coming off the bench. That's the only way the Blazers can compete if they don't bring in another star, and they have to compete to keep Damian Lillard. It's so odd to think about with Damian Lillard. I think back over his career in Portland, who was the best star that he had with them? And the one name that comes to mind, obviously, is LaMarcus Aldridge when he was with him early on in those Portland years. But Damian Lillard was so young at that point, he was not anything like we've seen today. Could a duo of LaMarcus Aldridge, and that, that when Damian Lillard was there, Aldridge was performing. Uh, he had a great playoff run that one point. Lillard today with LaMarcus Aldridge then, I still don't even think gets it done today in today's league. It doesn't. So you look at these other guys that they brought in, McCollum, Hassan Whiteside. They gave him a pretty decent contract to come play and be a big man. Didn't perform whatsoever. The Blazers, I don't think they have a real great chance. Obviously, outside of Lillard saying he wants to stay, I don't think they have a good chance to keep him because I just don't see them being able to entice that other superstar. And at some point, if they don't find a way to bring in a superstar, we're going to see the opinion of Lillard leaving turn into a, it was time, good for you, is what you should have done. You look at a guy like Russell Westbrook when he stuck around after Kevin Durant left. When the Thunder went to move him, the fans still loved him, and it was a, okay, it's time. You need to go try to find a place and win. That's what we're seeing. We're going to see here with Damian Lillard if they don't get him a superstar fast. And if you're the front office of the Blazers, that should be the last thing that you want is your fan base saying, you know what, yeah, it won't be here. You're not going to be a champion here. So, for me, I don't think they have a great opportunity outside of, like what you said, just him wanting to be there. And our last point in this series, Nikola Jokic was named the MVP. And David called this a few weeks ago. He was 
he was on the hype for Jokic winning MVP, and he just had a great run of it all season long. Just great, consistent player. I got to ask you, though, is this a sign of change in NBA game plan? And what I mean by that is the use of a big man this decade, you could say, has gone down compared to the previous decade quite a bit. The NBA shifted kind of when Golden State took over. It was, hey, if you can't shoot a three, you're not on the court type of deal. Him, Jokic, winning MVP, does that bring back the gameplay to a dominant big man being successful in the league? You can do it with a dominant big man again? I don't think so. I'm going to say no. Uh, he, Part of why the Nuggets are good is obviously Jokic is incredibly talented, obviously MVP. But there is a lot of talent around him on that roster. And I think maybe we can see more dominant big men, but it's not going to be in the way of guys like Shaq or previous greats where it was rebounding, defense, be tall. It's Guys are going to have to do a lot more. Jokic can is probably one of the best passers on that team. He can rebound incredibly well and can score from pretty much anywhere in the half court. You need to be able to do it all as a center, and that's really hard to do. So I think we can see some dominant big men, but it won't be like it was in 2000 or before then. There aren't going to be stars that are just run, jump, and dunk. You need more than that, and that's harder to come by. Yeah, Steph Curry changed this league. Whether you like it or not, he changed the league. If you can't shoot the three ball, you're a liability offensively on the court, and that's just the way it is. We've seen big men start to develop three-point shots. Nikola Jokic is one of them. He's developed that three-point shot. He's no longer a liability. He's the MVP at that point. I think... When you look at a big man that can shoot the three as well as Jokic, it doesn't it won't change the game plan. I'm with you, but it can start to shift kind of how good teams are. If you have a dominant big man that can shoot the three like Jokic, you can be a successful team, but not by himself. Now, you put this Nuggets team out there, you put Jamal Murray with this Nuggets team, the way the playoffs have shaped up and who we have left, put Jamal Murray back with this team. I think there's a good chance they represent the West. I think there's a very good chance because when you look at all these other teams, what do they not have? They don't have a guy like Jokic. They just don't. The Jazz, they don't have that dominant guy who can shoot the three. Rudy Gobert, a dominant guy down low, can't shoot the three. You look at the Clippers. They're Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. Really about it. They don't have that dominant big man who can shoot the three. Then you look at the Suns. DeAndre Ayton. A nice big man cannot shoot the three. So I don't think the la- the league is changing. But if you have one of these guys, you have an Anthony Davis type player, Jokic, you're going to be very successful because he's very tough to guard and it puts any defense in bad positions. We're going to take our first break here on Sportsmanlike Conduct. When we come back, we're going to take a look at the Suns-Nuggets series. Suns take game one by 18. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back into a Sportsmanlike Conduct on KALA HC2 and the 106.1 FN dial. I'm Logan Howell. With me, as always, is David Meyer. And we're going to continue our NBA playoff talk here. We're going to move into our next series. 
The Suns take game one over the Nuggets by 18 points. Like I alluded to earlier, looking at this series, knowing the Nuggets have had some injuries, are the Nuggets in trouble against this Suns team? I think a little bit. Just people are underestimating and have underestimated throughout the season how good the Suns actually are. And part of what makes the Suns so good is... You know, they have star players and star scorers, uh, Chris Paul, uh, Devin Booker. But you can have a game like game one in this series where no one goes for 25 or more. It's just every four out of your five starters score 20 points. And Jay Crowder, who's that fifth starter, uh, gets 14. You have the ability to go anywhere and get large amounts of points. And I don't think any team can really say that. Yeah, I I think in this entire... Whoever's left in this playoff, all those teams, can't really say that. And it's just the overall well-roundedness of the Suns that's going to make it tough for the Nuggets. Yeah, and I'm one of those people that uh, underestimated truly how good the Suns were. And I don't know if it's market out in Phoenix, what it is, but this team is dangerous. And the one thing about them, they were counted out against the Lakers. They weren't even favorites in a series, and they were the two seed coming into that game. They proved everyone truly how good they were. Devin Booker is a star, and if anyone didn't know that before this playoff series, there you go. He just showed you he can do it in the playoffs. He can do it in crunch time. Are the Nuggets in trouble? Absolutely. Nobody should want to play the Suns right now. They are, in my opinion, probably the hottest team in the league. Coming off that big series against the Lakers. And that's one thing that they can do. They can get four guys to score 20 points. But they also have Devin Booker, who's capable of scoring. I believe he has a 60-point game in his arsenal as well. He can shoot the lights out consistently. That is very scary when you have guys like Chris Paul on the team. Who also, when healthy, can be a number two complimentary scorer. He's done it before. When they look at this team, the Nuggets just don't have, in my opinion, they don't have the points to keep up with this team. You look at the Blazers series, that went to six games, and it was a couple C.J. McCollum turnovers away from probably going seven. That Blazers team wouldn't stand a chance against the Suns. Yes, they have a scorer like that too, but not near the depth around this around Devin Booker Damian Lillard so I look at this the Nuggets are in trouble because I just don't think they have the offense to keep up they have a very a very deep team but when you look at it it's normally one guy that steps up for them it you'll get Porter Jr. to step up big or Monty Morris to step up big when you look at this Suns team they all do it consistently so for me I do think they're in trouble looking at this series Suns Nuggets who comes out on top in how many games? Uh, I have, I'm going to stick with what I had originally. So, Suns in six. I think the Nuggets can take a couple games off the back of Jokic and possibly forcing some inefficiency from the Suns scorers. But when one of those scorers is having a tough night, They'll be un- unselfish and 
be more of a facilitator and have someone else go off instead. So it's going to be hard, but I think Jokic and just how unguardable he is will get them two games out of this series. But it's Suns all the way. Yeah, I'm going to go Suns in. I'm going to go five on this one. I think Nuggets avoid the sweep. I still think the Suns get it done easily. I wouldn't be shocked to see a sweep, but I don't. I think Jokic respect him enough to he at least steals one game, and that's why I mean he's the MVP. I mean you can't bet against a guy like that. So I got five. The Suns take it in five. I mean this team's just dangerous. They're fun to watch. They're the young guns in the NBA right now. That Chris Paul signing was huge. It was massive getting him with this organization. You've seen Devin Booker go from just a true scorer to an all-around just really good player and really developed this year. And Chris Paul also, this is his opportunity to get to the conference finals. We saw it those Clippers teams, the Rockets team, always falling up just short of the conference finals. I think they have a real opportunity to represent the West if they can keep this hot streak up. And now we're going to move into a, another series here. The Clippers come back down 2-0 to beat the Mavericks. Looking at this series, I had the Clippers winning, but after they went down 2-0, I was starting to second-guess myself a little bit. It really didn't look pretty for this team. What went wrong for the Mavs after they went up 2-0? Just, they couldn't put anything together around Luka Doncic. He's so good and so talented, and they couldn't just, they couldn't do anything without him. He was the lead scorer, the lead facilitator, and one of the top guys in rebounds the entire year, and especially in the playoffs, you can't, it's like we talked about with Damian Lillard, you can't win with only one guy. That second star was supposed to be Kristaps Porzingis, but he's been inconsistent. What kind of what teams are doing as an entire philosophy is get one or two stars and then surround them with three and D guys. The three and D guys for the Mavs didn't three and they didn't D. They just weren't good. And if you don't have those role players hitting threes and playing good defense, you're not going to win. Luka kind of pulled them to those two wins, but after that, it was all downhill. Yeah, I, I think the Clippers, it wasn't what were wrong with the Mavericks. Those issues, I think, have been there. Those Kristaps, I mean, the question marks around that team besides Luka have all been there. It's just Luka is such a dominant player at his position that he's able to really mask those things. But then the Clippers realized, okay, we can start to attack here. And you saw the Clippers in their Game 7 win. They started to get some consistency to this team. You saw Kawhi have 28. He didn't need 40 to come out on top. Marcus Morris, 23 points. Paul George, 22 points. You're getting 15 from Reggie Jackson, over 10 from Terrence Mann, Luke Kennard as well. You're starting to get some consistency from some of these depth players. That's key for this Clippers team because they didn't have that either. I mean, Paul George, he has a history the last few years of not showing up in the big playoff games. He's starting to try to put that to bed. This team finally started to get consistency, and that's really, I think, what went wrong in this series. A consistent Clippers team is good enough to beat just a Luka-led Mavs team. It's the way it is, and that's what we saw happen. 
And now looking at this Clippers team, do we do you think they're finally going to reach their potential? I mean, this team has been talked about as a team that should be in the conference finals every year. Last year, we talked everyone talked about how it should be Lakers Clippers in the conference finals. Clippers don't make it there, never even get a series. Now they're facing tough competition here in their current series against the Jazz, which we'll get into in a little bit. But do the Clippers have the potential to finally reach the lofty goals they were given when Paul George and Kawhi Leonard teamed up together? I'm going to say no. I don't think that they're going to reach that top-tier team. They're going to be competitive in the West, but they aren't going to be able to get past the conference finals or really break into that uh, finals conversation. Just they have a lack of depth. We've talked about it all all day today. They don't they have like one and a half stars. Kawhi is obviously number one on that team, but Paul George, he's kind of in and out. Sometimes he's good and sometimes he's just terrible. You need two consistent stars and the depth around those guys isn't great. There are a couple names that jump out. Serge Ibaka, you get uh, Patrick Beverly, who defensively is solid, but I think a little overrated in that aspect. But there's there's not too much to write home about, and I think they're really going to get kind of steamrolled by this Jazz team. Yeah, I agree with you. They're not going to reach their potential this year. I'm going to go as far as to say the Clippers will never, this Clippers team, will never reach the potential that they were given and those lofty goals they were given when Paul George and Kawhi Leonard came together. When those two got traded and they were together, everyone had them ranked as the best team in the NBA. The number one the number one team, they're going to win it all, title favorites. I don't think this duo is ever going to win a championship together. I really don't. I don't see it happening, especially if this is the Clippers team we're going to see together for such a long time and I think it has to be. I mean, the picks that were given up to go get Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, you look at it, you you can't. There's really not much more you can do for this team. You can continue to try to add in veteran stars and hope that they play better. It hasn't worked out the best in the last two years. You can continue to try it, but I don't know if that's really what's going to get them there. This duo is never going to win a championship together. I think it's time to finally just toss that out there. It's it's not happening, especially this year. I don't expect them to get past the Jazz this series. If they do happen to get past the Jazz, you will get stiff competition from what we both say is going to be the Suns. So good luck having to beat both those teams to go to the championship and let alone win it against a Brooklyn team that possibly could get there that or the Sixers that are very dominating. So no, I don't think they'll ever reach that potential. Now looking at Dallas, though, what's next for this team? Where do you go if you're the Dallas Mavericks? That's definitely a hard hard question to answer because you're kind of in purgatory. You're a playoff team who's going to probably be a playoff team for the next couple of years just off the back of Luka, but, which means you don't get any premium picks but you can't really sign anyone in free agency because your money's already wrapped up. Uh, you're going to have to sign Luca to an extension if you want to keep him at least soon. And Kristaps, 
you could trade him. It's just your return is not going to be anywhere near what you want. You might be able to get a mid to late round first, but is it really worth trading him if that's the return? He's You're basically going to need Kristaps Porzingis to be better. There isn't a whole lot to say about that. Be consistently on the court, not be injured. He's got to be healthy, and he's got to have a consistent play style. And I think something that isn't talked about enough is Kristaps isn't really being utilized as he should. He's 7-3. He should be down in the paint. I know it's more uh, seen having that five-out offense, but if you have a guy who's 7-3 just standing in the corner for a three, waiting for that pass, you're not utilizing him as you should. I think you can get some Kristaps uh, post-ups and let him just kind of ISO and go to work down low, and that can open up your offense. If you can do that and he can be successful in the post, it's going to really help your offense flow. I'm not sure if that's going to be able to happen, but it's something that needs to be explored. Yeah, for me, I think it starts, it has to start, like you said, with Kristaps. Absolutely has to start there. I think you start out with moving Kristaps. I know, like you said, he could be utilized better, but in terms of what this team needs, I think moving on from Kristaps, just in terms of saving this team the money to go get other people. Yes, your return's not going to be that great because his value right now, not the highest, especially that it has been over his career. But you look at his contract hit, cap hits the next three years here. Next season, $31 million. The following season, 33 And then the following year after that, up to $36 million. For me, Kristaps is not a player worth $30 million plus. He's just not. So you have to get rid of him. He made 29.5 this year, very close to 30. Also not worth that. If you're paying that type of money, why not why not get it to a bigger star, a more consistent player, less injured player to help Luka out? Because you get another star here with Dallas, they're in an interesting situation. But that's the issue. Like you said, trading for one, not really in the cards for this team. But you try to get a free agent guy. And there's not it's not a great free agent class. I mean, every team looking for a star, it's going to be Kawhi Leonard. That's the first name that's going to pop up with every team. I don't think Dallas realistically can attract a Kawhi Leonard to them. I know Luka and what he brings to the game. He This team does not attract a Kawhi Leonard-esque player. I think it has to start with Chris Stops. Could it set you back a year? Sure, it could. But in terms of long-term team building for this Dallas team, I think it starts with moving on from Chris Stops this year, freeing up the money, and to take a year back to move forward, I think is better than being stuck in the situation they're in. Like you start, you alluded to, they're stuck right now. Take a take a step back to move forward, and that's what I'm doing. If I'm the Mavs, I'm getting rid of Chris Stops, no matter what it takes. What I'm getting back, just free up that money to start giving yourself an opportunity to build with Luca. And now speaking of Luca, after this series. He put it all out there to come up short once again to the Clippers, just like the previous season. Is Dallas a long-term home for Luka? It's it's going to be, you know, possibly, but it's really going to be decided 
on what happens in this offseason and the next season. He has uh, just, I think, one or two more years left on his contract, and they have to put something around him or he's going to walk. He hasn't specifically been super vocal about wanting to stay or wanting to leave. He's not really kind of discussed that. But I think the hope in Dallas is you sign him to a max extension, get him locked up long term, especially with how young he is. It's it's going to be hard to do that. I I believe it's going to be hard to do that, especially with some of the other guys who have signed to long-term extensions and then have been kind of stuck there. We're going to talk about this a little later, but Giannis is struggling in the playoffs with the uh, the Bucks, and he's there for five more years. It's I think he could definitely move on in free agency or be dealt, but it's going to have to be the right deal for the Mavs, and the Mavs would have to get a lot back. Although, I think him walking in free agency is more likely, or some sort of sign-and-trade. Yeah, I think it's too early to tell if it's a long-term home for Luka. I think for Luka, sure, that's probably where he wants to stay, because a lot of people have, when you get drafted by a team, a connection to them. It's going to be, that's where I want to stay, I want to win a championship here. But when you look at this build of Dallas, I mean, he's not gonna he's not gonna get to the second round with the current setup of the Dallas Mavericks unless they pull a top three seed and get a one of the worst teams um, to make the playoffs. That's the only way that you're gonna see that them move on. I think it all starts with Kristaps. It that's the first domino to fall. Is what do you do with Porzingis? You saw what he did in the postseason. You pay him thirty million. But your second best player on this team in this series was Tim Hardaway. That's the first domino to fall. That's the first big domino that decides where where Luca ends up and if Dallas is the long term home. Do you make a move? Do you get another star for him? Do you show that you're wanting to build this team around him? The Bucks, they they tried to show to Giannis, hey, we're building this team around you. They brought in Drew Holiday. They made a couple other trades. They tried to show, we are going to do our best to build this team around you and help you out. Dallas has to start doing that now. Another first-round exit for Luka and the Mavs in the playoffs, and it really starts to put the pressure on this Dallas team, and it starts to put the pressure on Luka. He's a young star with no playoff wins in terms of series. Not one playoff series win quite yet. That, we talked about earlier with Damian Lillard, legacy. How are you going to be remembered? He could stay in Dallas, and if let's say he stays in Dallas and never wins a championship, Luka won't be remembered quite like these other guys. So for me, it starts with Chris Stops. You have to show to Luka that we're either going to use him better, utilize him better, or we're going to move on from him, save that money, get you someone else here, and it all starts right there. We're going to take our second break here on Sportsmanlike Conduct. When we come back, we're going to dive into the Jazz vs. Clippers series and also get into that Nets-Bucks series. Nets up 2-0 after a blowout Game 2 win. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back into Unsportsmanlike Conduct on KALA HD2 in the 106.1 FM dial. I'm Logan Howe. With me, as always, is David Meyer. We're going to continue this NBA playoff talk, kind of the main focus of the sports world right now. 
And the next series we have up here, the Utah Jazz take game one from the Clippers by three points, came down to the wire. When you look at this matchup, what is your favorite matchup within this Jazz Clippers series? For me, it's it's tough to pick because there is just so much talent on both sides. But I'm going to go with uh, Donovan Mitchell and just whoever is guarding him because... Ideally, you probably want to put uh, Kawhi Leonard on him because he's your best defender on the best scorer. That just makes sense. But that's not always what the Clippers are doing. And Donovan Mitchell has been just demolishing the Clippers' defense. He's going at guys on the pick and roll where they have to either switch, uh, switch off that pick or just go through it hard and he's been switching getting basically a poor defender and just blowing right by them destroying them with his handles he has almost single-handedly put every defender that he's gone against on a highlight reel somewhere showing this guy getting crossed up Luke Kennard getting crossed up Zubat's getting crossed up. It doesn't matter who he's on. He gets that pick and roll, that slight miscommunication, that slight uncertainty in a defender, and he's already at the basket. Donovan Mitchell on any defender on Donovan Mitchell is just on roller skates from the beginning. Donovan Mitchell, this is like when you look at this type of play, is nothing new for him. Last year in the bubble... He was phenomenal, put up huge numbers in the bubble, but no one really noticed it because they got bounced by a Nuggets team when Jamal Murray and Jokic were also putting up phenomenal numbers. But now, this Jazz team, if if you're Portland, this is kind of what you want to do with Damian Lillard in terms of you have your elite guy. But this Jazz team, it's deep. There's some depth on this team. If you're Portland, that'd be best-case scenario for you. You're not going to get another star get a good number two with Rudy Gobert. He's more well-known for his defense, but a good number two player on that team and have an excellent depth around them. That's best-case scenario for Portland. But back to the Jazz here. My favorite matchup when looking at this is what wins in today's NBA. You have the star-studded LA Clippers. Went all-in, traded all their picks. They have all these stars. Does that, the big two, beat a Jazz team that's really truly one star and excellent depth around him? We've seen one star, not great depth, and consistent depth get knocked out. This Jazz team, though, consistent depth, sixth man of the year, they have a lot to like about this team. What wins in today's NBA? Is it going to be the stars, or is it going to be the star with depth? That's what I'm watching in this one. And now that shifts us over to looking at this series. Do you think this is going to be a good series, or do we see the Jazz close this one out rather quickly? I think the Jazz are going to close out quickly. Probably five games. I think. I don't think anyone at this point in the playoffs is going to get swept easily, at least. So I'm going to say five games. The Jazz... 
just too talented. They they have what the Trailblazers want. They have that star player in Donovan Mitchell and just phenomenal depth around him. You have a kind of pseudo-star in Rudy Gobert. He's more uh, defensively a top-tier player than offensively, but he's you know kind of all-star adjacent, in my opinion, and you have that depth that is just going to keep you in games when your stars are out, and that's going to be able to kind of just lead them right past the Clippers. Yeah, I don't. I don't think the Clippers get out of this series. Um, the when you look at the Mavericks one, it took very good play all around for the Clippers to find a way out of that series. And the Jazz are a far better team than the Mavericks, in my opinion. So I don't think they have what it takes to win this series. They are going to win a couple. I think it's going to be a good series. Um, I think Jazz take it in six, possibly even seven. I think it's going to be that type of series. But the Jazz do come out on top, and they move on in the NBA playoffs. And now that's going to shift focus into the Eastern Conference here. The Brooklyn Nets up 2-0 on the Milwaukee Bucks after a blowout Game 2 victory. Looking at this Bucks team, they haven't been playing all that great. And the way it looks right now, things could get even worse for this Bucks team. Do they even stand a chance in this series? With how they look right now, no. Not not even a little bit of a chance. They're just getting destroyed on both ends of the court. Their offense is stagnant and slow. It just, there isn't anything going on. There's no off-ball movement. It's just guys kind of coming up, dribbling the ball for a little, for five seconds, and then chucking up a shot. That's, you, you can't have that. You need shooters to get open, and Coach Bud is just not doing well. Either he's not coaching on offense effectively, or his players are doing something completely different. I think it's the first one. And on defense, they're getting exposed in every way possible. Durant and Kyrie are just too hard to guard. They're, they have five legitimate shooters on the court at all time, so you can't really have any help defense come off a player because as soon as you do ball goes to that guy and he's draining a three. There's there's no real way to defend the Nets all that well. So the Bucks and the Bucks haven't even come close to defending them well. Yeah. Defensively, your one matchup you thought, okay, we could have some success with slowing down Durant. We have Giannis. We might have success success there. It hasn't worked out like that whatsoever. Kevin Durant in game two was phenomenal. And he was beating the Bucks from all over. He's beating them off the dribble. And you look at what Kevin Durant was doing, three-point line, taking it in from the elbows, winning from the free-throw line as well. Kevin Durant right now is playing unguardable for this Nets team. And if Giannis is not able to guard Kevin Durant, I don't know where you start at if you're this Bucks team. Because Kyrie's been successful as well. And James Harden hasn't touched the court yet. That's scary. And he's not going to be out there for Game 3 either. But 
I look at this series down 2-0 and blown out in game two. No, the Bucks don't stand a chance in this series. And they can get more consistent from Chris Middleton. He started out, I believe, 0 of 8, but then made about 5 or 6 straight. So he battled back well. This team, the Bucks, could have Middleton playing well and Giannis playing well, as playing well too. And they still, I think, don't win this series. This Nets team right now, Kevin Durant playing unguardable. Kyrie Irving, one of the best ball handlers, if not the best ball handler in the NBA. And then James Harden, one of the best just pure scorers in the NBA coming back at some point. Uh, it's tough. This Nets team, they're playing phenomenal. And even if the Nets play perfect like they did in game two and the Bucks play perfect, the Nets still win. The Nets still come out on top. So for me, Nets, they just are going to, they could even sweep this series, to be honest. The way the Bucks are playing, this one could be done in four. And now looking at this Bucks team, did Giannis make the right decision to re-sign with Milwaukee? I'm going to say no. I remember watching uh, game two, turned it on a little late, and the Bucks were already down big. And the first thing that popped into my mind was, wow, Giannis is here for another five years. That's That's not good. They have not a lot of flexibility. There's no one coming off there's no big player coming off the books. You don't have any premium draft picks or young guys to trade and move around. It's I think it all comes down to the coaching. Your roster's pretty solid. You have good depth uh and solid rotation around Giannis. Giannis just needs to step up in big games and he needs to, in the offense, be utilized better. Because right now he's not really attacking the basket the way he should. And I think it starts with Coach Bud uh, hitting the bricks, getting fired right away. Some people have even talked about him getting fired midway through this series. They're so bad. And honestly, I don't blame him. I, I would seriously consider firing him mid-playoff series with how bad they are. Yeah, I think when you look at the decision, I think both sides, I don't know when you look at both sides of the situation here, I'm not quite sure either made the right decision right now. When I look at it, Giannis, the way this Bucks team around him's playing, and yet, yeah, wrong decision. Probably should have left, went somewhere else. Also, if I'm Milwaukee, Giannis now, this is two playoff series, one last year, one this year, where he's finally gone up against a top-tier team, and it's they're underdogs, and they need to come out on top, and he hasn't performed. I don't know what it is, but that's two playoff series in a row. Now, if he's out here like Luka and Damian Lillard scoring 50 points a game and losing, absolutely, I feel bad for you. You are doing everything you can. Giannis, he's leaving some out there on the court. Compared to what we've seen from Giannis over his career, he could play a lot better in this series. Does it win you the series? No. So that's where I say, yes, he made the wrong decision as well. But found Milwaukee, I have to look at Giannis too and say, you also aren't stepping up to the plate. You also aren't playing like we've seen from you throughout the regular season. You're not the MVP Giannis that we re-signed once you hit the postseason. 
both sides, I think, could have gone with. And I know Giannis wasn't going to go on a short-term deal, but I think both sides, when you look at what would have been best for both of them, Giannis going short-term with Milwaukee, just so you see what they do over the next couple of years. You don't lock yourself in because, like you said, five years left with this team, yikes, yikes. Big things need to be changed. And if you're Milwaukee, do you want five years of this is now two straight years of inconsistent postseason play from a former MVP? It's also something to think about if you're the Milwaukee Bucks. But I will agree. Budenholzer, you probably should be out. And we'll see what they decide to do with that. Now looking at this Nets team, we talked about Durant, talked about Kyrie. Harden hasn't even played yet. Can anyone remaining in the NBA playoffs on the Western side and also the Eastern side genuinely say they match up well against the Brooklyn Nets? Not would they beat them in a series, but would they match up well on paper against this Nets team? Not really. I don't think... Overall, I don't think anyone can match up well against the Nets. It's more of a question of can anyone match up kind of okay against the Nets? And I think that question is still no. The closest is probably the Sixers. But past them, there isn't a lot. You're, they, I talked about it earlier. They just have too many shooters. It's five shooters on the court. At all times. As soon as you come off someone to give some help defense, which you're going to need. You need help defense just in this league as a whole. But Kyrie is going to get past guys. You're going to need help off that. Durant, Harden, they're going to get past their defender. And you're going to have to help or it's just a free path to the bucket. So because they have all these shooters... There's really nothing you can do. If you help off a off your man, it's basically a wide open three. Until they bring in some bench guys. And even then, I think the worst shooter I can think of is DeAndre Jordan, who hasn't been getting many minutes, if any. So their bench is full of shooters. Even guys like Blake Griffin are hitting threes. No one can really match up well against the Nets. Agree. 100%. When you look at it, when this team got put together, I, it was a question then. Does anyone stand a chance? The only way you could hope to stop this team was if the chemistry didn't work out. And for some reason, this is perfect chemistry between these three. It really is. And we're seeing this team been so successful all year, even in the postseason. And they're still without one of their true stars. When you put the best ball handler in the NBA who has a great scoring ability with one of the best pure scorers and one of the best shooters to ever play in NBA history, and then you put that with just one of the all-around best players to ever play in the NBA, I don't know how you guard that. And three stars, and most people have two. And most people, Kevin Durant is kind of on his own in terms of just the pure, per, pure length and also shooting ability, I don't think anyone really truly matches up all that well against him. You look at a guy like Kawhi, a guy like LeBron in his prime, those match up well. But then you look, go to the other two. Do though, do, Does Kawhi Leonard and the Clippers have someone who could guard James Harden? No. Could Do they have someone that could guard Kyrie? No. 
It's tough. It really is. Because then you could talk about teams that could guard Kyrie and Harden, but can they guard Kevin Durant? No. It is truly tough to guard this team. And they're getting these, I talked about with some other teams, these veteran guys just to play well. And that's been a challenge for some of these teams. They have veteran guys playing well. Blake Griffin, wherever you were hidden at, welcome back to the NBA. Welcome back to the NBA. Whole different player with the Brooklyn Nets. He slammed it down on Giannis. He didn't dunk in three years. When you have Blake Griffin all of a sudden playing somewhat relatively back to his old self, I don't know how you guard this team whatsoever. And now looking at Kevin Durant, I talked about him and just his pure ability being that tall, can shoot that well. And he also, he's got some moves to him in terms of he has some moves to get open and free himself up off the dribble. Looking at Kevin Durant, where would you rank him among players in the league today? I think he's just overall top five for sure. Top three probably. And once you get into that top three conversation, there's no real way you can fully pick one guy to be top but if you could it's probably Kevin Durant in the NBA today I don't think there's a more complete player with everything KD has he has just the scoring in every form shooting getting to the basket finishing everything is just a plus past that he's got solid ball handling skills I'd say probably like B plus ball handling and facilitating and his defense is it's solid I don't think it's talked about enough he's one of those guys who doesn't try super hard on defense but if he really wants to lock you down he can he's incredibly well-rounded it's like you took the defense and length overall of Ben Simmons and added shooting to it. That's what Kevin Durant is. And he's just, he has that clutch factor of making big shots with guys all over him. So I think he's top three, maybe the best in the league. Yeah, when I look at it, I'm trying to look at these other players. This goes back for me all the way back to the Warriors-Cavaliers final series that they had there. A lot of people were passing the torch from LeBron as the greatest player in the NBA to Kevin Durant. And it was this, he's now taken over. A lot of people, it was the shot that Durant had. It was towards the end of one of the games, he just pulled up, he jogged down the court and pulled up with LeBron right in front of him and drilled it. I wasn't ready to pass the torch then. I said, okay, you look at Kevin Durant. Put him on this Cavaliers team. Put LeBron on the Warriors. Who wins? The Warriors, just as easy, if not easier. Now, looking at LeBron James, starting to deal with injuries, something I thought never would happen, LeBron James getting old, and it's actually starting to show. I mean, he's a guy, for me, that I never, I can't imagine watching basketball without him. He was always the top guy for me for years and up until this season. Now I see Kevin Durant and what he's doing on a Nets team that's dealt with all types of injuries to their star players. They've been in and out of the lineup. No real consistency in terms of getting those three together. And they didn't miss a beat 
and Kevin Durant averaging 27, 7, and 4 while shooting nearly 50% from the field, nearly 40% from the three-point line. It's it's time. For me, he's the best in the league. I look at it. Is there someone at his size that can shoot the three as well as him? No. Is there someone his size with the dribbling ability that he has? No. I You look at the moves that Kevin Durant has, the ability to free himself up, that's him. That's just what he does. I don't think there's another guy his size that can free himself up that well off the dribble. You talked about the clutch factor that he has. Kevin Durant right now is the best player in basketball. If I wanted to build a team and I was given just right now, I wanted to build and win a championship right now, I would take Kevin Durant. Yes, he's dealt with some injuries, but just overall, you have guys that have his scoring ability, but don't have his size. You have guys with his size that don't have nearly the scoring ability. For me, that just meshing those two together, it's hard to say that anyone's better than him. And that's why I'm ready to say that Kevin Durant's taken over that top role. And if everything goes like I personally think, he's going to have another championship this season. And then it's really, you can't deny what he has going for him. Now, if Kyrie Harden were healthy all year long, then you could still have that argument. Okay, well, put a LeBron in that situation. Put a so-and-so in that situation. But that's not been the case. They've dealt with adversity all year and are dealing with it in the playoffs, and they've responded far better, far better than I could even imagine. We're going to take our next break here on Sportsmanlike Conduct. When we come back, we're going to shift into our AFC East predictions. Last week, we did the NFC East. We got rid of the worst division first for you guys. Now we're going to move into a better division and also talk about Julio Jones traded to the Tennessee Titans. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back into Unsportsmanlike Conduct on KALA HD2 and the 106.1 FM dial. I'm Logan Howe. With me, as always, is David Meyer. And like I said before we went to break, last week we did the NFC East, got that out of the way for you guys. Now we're on to the AFC East, which could has the potential to actually be a pretty interesting division this year if a couple teams live up to the hype they're supposed to. So now we're going to go through the AFC East here. We're going to start with who comes out with the one seed in this division. We'll start with you, David. Who is that for you? Uh, for me, it's pretty pretty easy. The Buffalo Bills. That feels weird saying because they were bad for just so long. But I have them coming out at 13 and 4. I think they're they've just got their building from last season. And they're just going to be better now. That's that's the goal of all off seasons, but Josh Allen another year under his belt. We really see this guy's legit. You add talent all over that defense. And I think it's really going to step up and be good enough so that offense doesn't need to just run and gun every single game. They can have take a little off if necessary. So I'm going with Buffalo, 13-4. Yeah, I also have the Bills here. Very common pick, and I think it's pretty easy to see why the Bills are the best in this division. I have them a record of 14-3 and three this season. And when you look at this team, Josh Allen, it starts with him. This team is as good as they are right now because the Bills bought into Josh Allen was the quarterback that needed the most work. He needed the most development in the draft. But it was one of those, 
if you're able to get him to that where he should be, he's going to be the best quarterback out of this class. Looking at it right now, it's between him and Lamar for best QB in that class. Baker is tr making a late push, trying to catch up to those guys. Then Sam Darnold and Josh Rosen just really have not panned out like they were supposed to. But the Bills built around Josh Allen, and they're absolutely reaping the rewards of that right now. They brought in Stephon Diggs last offseason. Another year of that combination together, scary to think about because it was so good last season. You talked about the defense and them getting better. They have young guys who are starting to transition into veteran slash stars. One guy who has been a star for a couple years, but I expect to take a big leap forward, Tredavious White, cornerback from LSU they've had there. He was the first-round pick in 2017. He's been phenomenal. You know you're going to get a lockdown corner out of him. And one underrated piece of the Bills is their safeties. They're very, very underrated what they have in the safeties position there. Jordan Poyer, Micah Hyde, fantastic safeties for them. Then you have Tremaine Edmonds, the linebacker spot. He was their first-round pick in 2018. I expect him to take a big step forward. The offense is there. Like you said, running gun, they're there. They're ready to succeed. They just have to slow down the likes of Patrick Mahomes and teams like that. And now the Tennessee Titans bring in Julio Jones. And then they're that top dog in the AFC. I like the Bills at 14-3. and This team's going to be just as good, I think even better, than last season. Now, moving to the second spot in the AFC East, who do you have residing there? I have Miami. Uh, just kind of a continuation of what we saw last year. Uh, I have them running at 10 and 7. They they have some tough matchups in there, and there's still offensive consistency issues. Their defense overperformed, I think, and it's going to come back to earth. And they're going to be just kind of on the good side of medium, but they are a young team, and I think they can perform pretty well. It's just they lack experience and chemistry together. I'm not from some reports from inside the uh, Dolphins camp. Brian Flores isn't 100% on Tua, and that's worrying because he's supposed to be your franchise quarterback. If anything drags them down, it's going to be that... Um, insecurity about Tua. I think that's the one thing that's going to drag him down. Still, uh, number two in the AFC East at ten and seven. Yeah, for me, I have the Dolphins as well. I have them coming in at eleven and six, so not too far off from each other so far. When you look at this Dolphins team, it starts, like you said, with Tua. It is Tua. I'm also not sold on Tua. I wasn't all that sold on him when he was coming out of the draft, coming off that major injury. He had some concerns in terms of um, deep shots, things like that. And you look at it, the report that you talked about, it was evident last season too. There's a reason Ryan Fitzpatrick was the one who came in and bailed Tua out multiple times. They knew they had a real shot to make the playoffs, and they knew Ryan Fitzpatrick gave them the best chance to do that. So for me, I'm not sold on Tua either. I want to see a breakout year from him. But in terms of team building, the Dolphins this offseason – killed it they did really well especially i'm going to focus on the draft what they were able to do in this draft class their first first four picks 
I love all four of them, and they're all starters. They all can be day one starters. We'll start with their first pick. They have Jalen Waddle, wide receiver from Alabama. Talk about you want to get too comfortable. Why not give him a guy he's worked with and one of the best overall deep threats? If he develops right, he can turn into one of the best deep threats in the league in general. College football-wise, him and Devontae Smith, those were the two. Then, at 18, they take Jalen Phillips, pass rusher from Miami. I was a huge fan of Jalen Phillips, and I was wanting a team with a good defensive coach to get him. Brian Flores is just that. I think if you use him correctly and he can stay healthy, he can turn into the best pass rusher in this class. My favorite two pass rushers were Aziz Olojuari and Jalen Phillips. Both slid in this draft. I think that could be a huge pick for them. Then second round, fourth overall pick there. They got that from the Texans. Javon Holland, safety from Oregon. Day, I think he can be a starter. It may not be a day one starter, but he can be a starter at some point for this team in the future. Javon Holland is a name that you have to look out for in this Dolphins secondary in the future of this team. And then they come back with the 10th pick. They got this one from the Giants. Liam Eichenberg, offensive tackle from Notre Dame. There's a guy that can start for you day one. He was a guy that some people had borderline first round grade on. You're able to snag him there. He can turn into a starter day one for you. You improve the line. You improve the defense. And you also get a, a threat for two. A true threat to put with Devontae Parker, Preston Williams. This team has some weapons. I like it a lot what they were able to do in the draft. That's why I have them coming in at 11 and 6. So now we're down to the third spot in the AFC East. Is this finally where Tom Brady's former team comes for you? Yeah, this is where New England goes. I think they're going to have another year where they struggle a little bit. I think they're definitely going to be better than they were last year, but I still have them coming in barely above 500. If there were an even number of games in the season, I would put them at 500, but I have them 9-8. and eight. I think they have the opportunity to be better. It's really going to be who's the starting quarterback, and if it's Mac Jones, how talented is Mac Jones really? There have been a lot of haters on Mac Jones. I am one of them. I don't think he's going to be great, but he he needs to prove the league wrong. So it'll be interesting to see what this New England team can do. They added a lot in free agency, had a pretty solid draft, they could be good, but I think there are going to be some growing pains. Yeah, Patriots, I've been coming in at 8-9 on this season. This Patriots team, Bill Belichick, free agent additions they made, I had them about average, just kind of just below average. We can't go 8-8 eight eight anymore, so kind of took away where I wanted to go with this. But 8-9 for this team, I, I'm not sure what they want to do at the quarterback spot. There was rumors that Mac's going to start day one, and you have the rumors about Cam Newton. Now Cam Newton's hurt. If they can figure out the quarterback spot and just get consistent play from that position, I think they can get to the average mark. They made some big-time additions in the offseason. Hunter Henry, Jonu Smith. For a young quarterback, that could be nice. But Mac Jones is used to playing with just pure speed threats at Alabama. Guys who separated so easily and got wide open. This is going to be a major adjustment for him. His best receivers are going to be 
I believe Nelson Aguilar and also Kendrick Bourne from San Francisco, both guys who aren't elite separators. Kendrick Bourne, he uses his size to get open quite a bit. He's a great third down guy. Most of his catches, I believe over 70% of his catches in San Francisco, if not 75 plus, were third down conversions or touchdowns. That's what he is for you. He's not a burner. He's not going to get elite separation consistently. Nelson Aguilar struggles with drops. He's a speed guy, but he's also not a true speed guy. That's what he's known for in terms of getting open on deep shots, but he's really, his hands are so inconsistent. He's not a true threat. This Patriots team, there's a lot to like in what they added this offseason. I didn't talk about the defense where they also made some big additions. I think they get to about average, and we see if Mac Jones is going to do something, it's going to be possibly for the following year. It's not going to be this year for this Patriots team, especially in division with arguably two playoff teams. Now we go to the last spot in the AFC East, a squad that I like, but they're just not there yet. They need to do some more. Both of us have the Jets sitting here. What record do you have the Jets coming in at? I have them at 4-13, and and I could definitely see them losing probably two more. Uh, There are a couple kind of toss-up games in this schedule. The biggest ones are Atlanta and Cincinnati. But I like the team. I like what Robert Sala is going to bring to this team and the culture he's going to build. Culture is so important for teams in any sport, but football especially. And I think they're building a good culture, but they still have kind of the after effects of Adam Gase. And that is not an easy thing to get past. There isn't really a whole ton of talent that jumps out at me on either side of the ball. Zach Wilson, still a rookie, still there's there's always question marks next to rookies. The defense is kind of okay. There isn't a whole ton of talent that I think can be a uh, star level caliber. I think he's gonna Robert Sala is gonna coach them to four wins, but the lack of talent is just too big. So four and thirteen for the Jets. Yeah, I I love what you talked about with Robert Sala in terms of what he's gonna bring to this team. Coming from San Francisco, a team that always continuously played very hard for their coaches, even though they were banged up and they had no shot of winning those games. They played extremely hard. The 40, this 49ers team, when you look at them over the last four years, since Kyle Shanahan Robert Sala got there to the team, outside of year one, when they brought in 65 new players to that team, they when you look at getting blown out, it wasn't very often that they got blown out, and they were not favorites in a lot of those games, ex- exclude the Super Bowl season. They were not favorites in a lot of those games, and then this year as well, because they were, outside of injuries, supposed to be a good team. Robert Sala can bring that to this Jets team. He's going to get the most out of these players. The defensive players in San Francisco loved him. I have 4-13 and 13 as well for this team, but you look at the foundation they have built, and I like it. I really do. I like it a lot. They bring in, on defense, Carl Lawson, Jared Davis. Those are two guys that are underrated signings, and if they pan out, could be nice. 
Jared Davis hasn't lived up to the hype. Carl Lawson's had one good year. Those are two guys that put in the right position could blow up with Robert Sala. I expect them to be more successful than they've been so far. On offense, you're starting to build a very nice offensive line. Elijah Vera Tucker at guard, I thought was, the, was a great pick for them where they got him. Makai Becton as well at tackle, their first round pick the previous year. Dan Feeney at the guard position as well. They have a nice line they're starting to put together. And then the receiving core, Corey Davis, he's a guy that hasn't lived up to his potential. Hasn't lived up to that 2017 fifth overall pick potential. He started to put it together last year, but now he's kind of the number one here in New York. Can he start to put it together? Mm, I don't know. We'll wait and see on that one. Elijah Moore is also a really good pick for this team. He is an elite separator. Great speed with them as well. He's a nice pickup for this team. And Zach Wilson. I was a huge fan of Zach Wilson in the draft process from a very early stage. Being a Niners fan, I was watching these quarterbacks since Jimmy Garoppolo had his ankle injury in week two against the Jets. That's when I started watching these quarterbacks. And Zach Wilson stuck out to me right away. Just what he can do from the quarterback position. He has the accuracy. He has a nice arm. But it's the things that he does that other quarterbacks aren't able to do. The off-platform throws. One throw that sticks out to me, I watched it live, BYU game. They had about 35 seconds until halftime. No timeouts. He steps up in the pocket, doesn't even plant his feet, and launches it 65 yards in stride to his wide receiver. Those are things that other quarterbacks just simply can't do. And there are the select few that can that have started that trend. Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes, they started this trend. He has all the potential in the world and can be a special talent. Can this coaching staff put him in a better position? I think so. Adam Gase is gone. If this was Adam Gase, led Jets, one of my favorite prospects would go to the wayside. But with Salah, Matt LaFleur using that Kyle Shanahan system that we've seen be successful when it has gone elsewhere with Mike LaFleur as well, they this team can be, they can be special in the future, just not now. Just not now for this team. They need experience and more pieces. I have 4-13, and 13, probably picking in the top 5, top 6 again next season, and that will be good for this team in terms of long-term building. Now we move on to an AFC team that made a monster move this weekend. Julio Jones traded to the Tennessee Titans for a second and a fourth round pick. You're the Tennessee Titans looking at this situation. Was this a smart move? for the Titans. Absolutely. Absolutely a fantastic move for the Titans. You are just incredibly happy. Like dancing in the streets happy with getting Julio Jones, one of the best receivers in the league. You were always 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 a run first team. Everybody every opposing team knew that. You were going to run the ball with Derrick Henry. Now you have options. You can still just pound the ball inside with Derrick Henry, and I think that's what they're going to stick to for the most part, but you have a lethal passing attack, and you got him for cheap. It was a second and a fourth, which you absolutely called it, Uh, but that's next to nothing. It's a late second and a fourth. Yeah, those are probably going to be some depth guys. They could turn into something, but 
on day two of the draft, it's really a crapshoot. So trading those, the possibility of depth or solid rotation pieces for proven star talent now is an absolute win. Yeah, the Titans, they needed a move like this. I love A.J. Brown. Best receiver in his class, in my opinion, a 2018 class there. D.K. Metcalf, very close second. But A.J. Brown, just what he does all together, I love it. Putting a guy like Julio Jones with him. Ryan Tannehill, who I believe is a little bit underrated as a quarterback. He sits, he kind of, we always talk about that mid-tier where you see your car, cousins, Garoppolo's. He's I put him in there, but he's the lead dog by a decent margin with those three guys. You look at it, he can bring to this team a constant deep ball, good accuracy, and can win games. And you have Derrick Henry. No longer can you put an eight-man box. You used to be able to get away with it because then you could still, it's just covering A.J. Brown, Corey Davis wasn't a legit number two. Now Julio Jones is the big dog, and A.J. Brown's the number two. That's scary in general. Derrick Henry as well. No more eight-man boxes for this team. Now you're going to see Ryan Tannehill also start to take a step forward. Play action game for this team. Oh, wow. It's going to be dangerous. The run after catch ability of Julio Jones and A.J. Brown. This team's going to be scary. This is going to be a scary team. And was it a smart move? Absolutely. Looking at it from Atlanta's perspective, was it a smart move for the Falcons? Not entirely. I think it it was the right move to go on away from Julio Jones. Trading him away was a good choice. But I think they needed to commit to the rebuild more. I think they should have traded off uh, Matt Ryan and really gone full rebuild. They could have taken a quarterback in the draft and I think if you move Julio before the draft you can get a first uh, for him maybe a late first but still a first moving on from him now once he makes it public that he wants to be traded is his value goes down so I think moving on from Julio as a whole was a good idea how Atlanta handled it not all that well. A second and a fourth is a steal for his talent. Yeah, when I look at this team, was it smart for Atlanta? No. No, I don't think it was. And you started to allude to it as well. If you're going to trade Julio Jones, why is Matt Ryan on this roster? I don't understand that. You have young pieces all around. On the defense, you have Deion Jones, a very good speed linebacker on the inside, top-tier guy. You have Calvin Ridley, top-tier wide receiver. You bring in Kyle Pitts at four, a elite weapon, wherever you decide to use him. Why why would you, if you're going to keep Matt Ryan, why are we getting rid of Julio? If you're keeping Matt Ryan, you tell me we are going to try to win right now, which you're not going to, but you tell me that's what you're going to try to do with Arthur Smith, your new head coach. Why trade Julio and keep Matt Ryan? If I'm the Falcons, I'm moving both of them. I'm moving veterans. I'm clearing up money now to try to get Calvin Ridley locked up, kept here long term. He cannot leave now. You have to find a way to keep him on this team with Julio Jones gone. You need having Ridley gave you the ability to possibly move on from Julio. 
but you still need him long term. You still have to find that contract with him. Kyle Pitts is on a good deal. And also, you talked about too a little bit the quarterback class here. This is a pretty good quarterback class in terms of what they could have gotten there. You had Lawrence and Wilson gone. You, no one really knew what number three was going to be. Every reporter thought they knew what number three was going to be, but no one really knew what three was going to be. Lance went off the board. Would you have liked a guy like Trey Lance for that situation? Absolutely. You let him sit behind Matt Ryan. That would have been perfect. But, I mean, a guy like Justin Fields, incredibly talented as well, and you could have used the same approach. You could have kept Ryan, sat him behind, and it would have been fine. It would have, I think, it would have made a quicker rebuild, but you still would have been fine. For me, I, you got to commit one side or the other, and they didn't. So now, next offseason, we get to talk about Matt Ryan getting traded because it's going to happen. It's just now pushing it to the future. And now looking at this trade, AFC South. Are the Titans in firm command of the AFC South after this move? I believe so. Unless Carson Wentz is an MVP in Indianapolis, the Titans are that number one spot in the AFC South. Like you mentioned earlier, that play-action offense is going to be the best in the league. You're either going to have to commit fully to Derrick Henry or fully to Julio and A.J. Brown, and you can't do both at the same time. So no matter what, someone's going to be open somewhere. There's going to be a weakness in that defense, and the Titans are going to exploit it all day, every day. And I think their defense is a little slept on, so the Titans are... I'd say they could be the number one seed out of the AFC this year. I think that's possible. Yeah, I mean, in terms of just pure talent, they stack up with the best. I mean, offensively, in terms of overall just offensive power, they're right there with the Chiefs. I still give the Chiefs the edge just because Mahomes. That's what really shifts that. But they're right up there with the top dogs. And you have to have a really good offense if you want to try to win this AFC. I mean, you look at teams like the Browns, the Ravens, the Chiefs. I mean, just top-tier offenses. And I'm, the Titans as well are now in that conversation. They're going to be a fun team to watch. And I have, in my predictions, the Colts and Titans, I had them both around the 11-12 to 12 win mark. And the Titans coming out on top of that division, this cements it. I was sitting there going back and forth. Oh, it comes down to the end. No, nah, it's cemented. This Titans team, they're going to win that division. They're going to compete in that AFC. Do they make the Super Bowl? I'm not ready to say that yet. I still think we'll have to see how the chemistry works here. But it's Julio Jones. He's one of the best to do it, and he's consistently at that. So one last thing we're going to do here before we get into our exciting weekend matchups that we're looking forward to. Looking at this wide receiver duo, A.J. Brown, Julio Jones, where do they sit in terms of best wide receiver duos in the league? Not talking tight end wide receiver, just pure wide receiver duos in the league. Where do you think they stack up? Top five, definitely. I there are. It's tough because there are so many good wide receiver duos, but I think I'm going to put them at two. Uh, Julio and A.J. Brown are both uh, pro bowlers, all pros, they're just fantastic guys. Uh, I think the one thing that drags them down is 
Julio's a little older and getting into that 30 plus range is worrying because you can get uh, more injury prone real easily. Uh, the number one spot for me goes to Tampa with Mike Evans and Chris Godwin. And part of that, even though it's just a duo, adding that Antonio Brown can replace one of the, those guys easily is what gives Tampa the edge. But the Titans are terrifying, and that duo is terrifying. Yeah, this was so tough for me. I I sat here and I thought about it. One, two, where do I put them? I ended up at one. And I ended up at one because when I looked at it, I said, okay, Julio Jones, Mike Evans, who would I rather have? I'd lean Julio. I know he dealt with some injuries last year, but that's not consistent of him throughout his career. He's been relatively healthy most of his career. I think Julio's a top three receiver in the league when healthy. Mike Evans, I think, is a top six, for sure, top seven wide receiver in the NFL. So then it comes down to A.J. Brown, Chris Godwin. That one can kind of lean towards a toss-up. I mean, both of them, fantastic wide receivers. I think both of them are top 20 wide receivers. I I lean Godwin in that situation, but I'm looking at three with a top 20 or about seven and a top arguably 15. I rolled with Julio just because the top heaviness of it. Having Julio is what threw it over the top for me. Having that top three guy is what put them there. But, I mean, that... That's just a great conversation to have. Just talking about Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, Julio, a and AJ Brown. Who's better? You could go back and forth for days on it, and I could easily be swayed the other way. And I'm sure it's the same for you. I mean, those guys. That's four elite talents at the wide receiver position. I am also excited to see AJ Brown now that he has Julio as a running mate. That's helped Chris Godwin out. I want to see how it helps AJ Brown out. And so now we're going to move into our favorite weekend matchup. David, what are you excited to see this weekend? Uh, this weekend, I'm. Last weekend, I went Blue Jays Astros. Again, Blue Jays this week going up against the White Sox. The White Sox are just such a fun young team who's doing incredible things. Uh, they're actually playing right now, bottom of the fifth. White Sox are up two to one. I really like the pitching matchups that are going on. Alex Manoa, the rookie, just a fantastic young talent who's performed very well. And then tomorrow, that matchup of Dallas Keuchel and Hyun Jin Ryu is just a pitcher's duel. I can see that being a one-run game easily, and I love a good pitcher's duel. That will be a very exciting matchup to keep your eye on. And for me, I went Nets-Bucks, and early in the show, I was talking about how this series was over, the Nets are going to win. I'm excited to see what happens, because I want to see how the Bucks respond. I talked about Giannis and Milwaukee possibly having second thoughts as well, because Giannis hasn't performed in the playoffs whatsoever. Here's his opportunity. I want to see how he responds back against the wall, down 2-0 against a phenomenal team, a team way better than yours. Do you go out there and have a Luka type performance, a Damian Lillard type performance, or do you fall to the wayside once again and not really show up for your team? I want to see how Giannis responds. That's why it's my favorite matchup of the weekend. And 
So for those that have been keeping track of trivia, last week's winner was Jay Cutler. That was the trivia answer for the week. And the hint that we'll give out tonight, this week's athlete, it follows in line with famous number sixes. This player got eliminated from the first round of the NBA playoffs this year. And if you listen to the whole entire show, I talked about how he needs to be cut this off season. So be on the lookout on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KLA underscore UC or on Sportsmanlike Conduct on Facebook for our trivia post tomorrow. And if you are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, give us a like and follow our social media posts that we've been putting out more consistently. That concludes this episode of Unsportsmanlike Conduct. Thank you for listening and good night. See ya. This is the public radio.